Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensrue, and my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives. We should not have a society yes. where fear is so instilled in one group of people over another one that because they're in an asymmetrical relationship of power, like a police and someone they're you know arresting without a weapon, that that fear leads them to overreact out of a type of prejudice that they were born into and did not pick. Hello, everybody. Today, we are joined on the show by the good Dr. Trip Fuller. Trip is super smart, extremely nerdy, a ton of fun, and very much out of his mind in the best way. He's the host of Homebrewed Christianity, the number one theology podcast on the internet, and he also recently moved to Scotland to accept a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Edinburgh. In our conversation, we talk about the five kinds of postmodern consciousness, why Tripp doesn't buy into C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma, and Tripp drops some hot takes on the theological implications of The Last Jedi. Let's dive in. All right. All right. Tripp. Thank you for Dustin. being here. We are in Glasgow. Uh, you took a train from Edinburgh where you have just moved. Correct. What are you doing in Edinburgh? Is it Edinburgh or Edinburgh? It's, so it's not Borough, it's Edinburgh. Borough. Yeah. There's a, no O U G H. Probably just got it's shortened over time. B U R G H. Yeah. Edinburgh. But I feel like that's just like it got lazy over time, right? I don't know. It's a capital city, so it can do whatever. If you have a castle. With a cannon that shoots off every day, you can tell everyone what to call you, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right, so what are you it's, doing in Edinburgh? I am a research fellow in religion and science at the University of Edinburgh. and uh, That sounds very fancy. I know. I mostly said yes so I could impress you. <laughs> um, all right, so you just moved out here. We'll get into more of your background a little bit later, but... I want to talk about uh, what would make you feel a deep sense of wonder when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in the South. I was a Baptist church planters preacher kid. So uh, until we moved to the city when I was in fifth grade, um, I was in a very rural environment. And a lot of my early experiences of wonder had to do with uh, nature when fishing out with my dad, mm -hmm. uh, sitting in a tree. Um, going to uh, uh, Creek. Like, the first time I... Went, my parents taught me contemplative prayer in middle school. And my dad was teaching me these different exercises. Uh, and one of them that really stuck was, like, to clear your mind, to think of yourself next to a piece of water. And when emotions or ideas are come up, just imagine them sitting on the stream. Hmm. And you acknowledge them. Like, this is what is going on in my body. This is what I'm thinking about or worried about or anxious about or whatever. But just wave at it as it goes by. Hmm. And as you become more at home, not attaching yourself to those uh, memories or energy or ideas or things you're stressed out or someone you're pissed at or whatever, um, uh, see what place it is. 
and like where is it you're at home in mm. the world and it's a very specific creek like out behind our house for you yeah yeah and i had this experience and i don't know what god looked like but i was in god's lap and it just felt like you were like in your grandparents lap mm-hmm. and i was sitting on the giant lap next to that creek and i could hear all the same bugs you hear mm-hmm. you know at home and and like that the source of all existence is that deep parental love that it uh, all this possibility in life is teeming through nature and things was always part of where the wonder came from and it and it was always I've always experienced it like within the Christian religion and stuff but in such a way I don't know. I've discovered myself not to be as tribally closed as a lot of other people that grew up Southern Baptist minister kids. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard you talk about your parents growing up a bit and the vibe that they had in as far as being very kind of socially embracing of a bunch of different people and taking care of people who were less fortunate. Just having that kind of mindset doesn't I think for most people seem to jive with, I don't know, the picture they have of uh, Southern Baptists. I mean, honestly, like I really, the thing I'll say about my, both of my parents is I know them really well and I think they take their faith seriously and they want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason dad came to the rest of the family was like, let's talk about starting a church. This was before there were contemporary churches. So our church was like the first one that had like a guitar at it, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Raleigh, um, was there are people that don't have community, um, and, and aren't culturally connected to the old style religion of the South. Mm-hmm. So we should make a space. Oh, here are all these people that are being ostracized because they're dealing with a disease. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't the body of Christ make space to support them and encourage them, especially when there are resources they don't even get because they're ostracized? Yeah. I would say if you, the thing that's most true about my upbringing is that uh, um, God, the way they would say it is, God has chosen to be in relationship with us. And when you follow Christ, then you choose to be friends with people. And once you're friends with people, then you can learn the right thing to do and not do, to say and not say. Mm -hmm. But... Um, it's like part, it comes naturally with friends, uh, uh, when you're friends. Yeah. And so like the biggest, like if you had to like the, the way they saw missions was really just who are the people that need a friend and mm. need a community? And then how do we make space? So they get to be f- as much of who they are uh, in the way they're able to share it with us. And then how do we love and share and live life with them? And, yeah. uh, and those were just kind of normal assumptions that aren't always shared by all religious people. That I just thought, well, obviously this is what Christians do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe that a lot of that is because religions can end up being so much of just a cultural experience where there's yeah. a bunch of assumptions about what you do or don't do, what other people should or shouldn't do, that it's easy to be part of that culture and not take kind of some of the fundamentals of why that thing started up in the first place seriously. Mm-hmm. One way I found it's helpful to think about it um, 
for those that, especially those when I was in L.A., most of the people at the congregation I worked at, I wouldn't say grew up religious. It was a UCC congregation, which is a much more progressive one. And um, they definitely didn't have the inertia of Southern religion. Mm-hmm. Um, is it uh, from what we are learning in cognitive science right now, human beings have a series of mechanism, uh, cognitive mechanisms that make them. Um, by like naturally spiritual or religious mm-hmm. that doesn't this has nothing to do with whether or not there's a god there or whatever, yeah. right right but that and they're also connected to the way in which human beings desire to know and be known by a community um, mm-hmm. and we evolved for the longest period of time where that community is right around 120 to 150 people yeah. right so when you get into the modern world where uh, the uh, economy, the quest for education, and all that kind of stuff moves us to different cities, uh, separates church, uh, separates us from the churches we're born in, or whatever, or the families that we are there. Mm-hmm. People um, are then like trying to succeed and go up the ladder, and don't have that group of people that they just don't even have to see their full face to know their name and expect a hug, mm-hmm. like. Apart from the bigger question, philosophical questions and stuff around like God or the spirit or whatever, uh, religious traditions for the longest time in human history have been the primary place we told big stories about our life transitions, about what it means to be in the world, about what it's like to be a neighbor, what it's like to start to learn to love our enemies and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And beautiful religions um, are ones who uh, can recognize that there's a gap between the language, the myths, the rituals, and whatever mystery it is that's mm-hmm. getting itself done in them. And religions that go wrong are ones that think they're the means to the end themselves. And over, over-identify the, the sign with what it's pointing to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and but it's not just religions that do that. I, if we, <laughs> we currently have that happening in, in politics yeah. uh, as well, but also can ruin relationships, right? Like uh, early in our marriage, I remember Alicia and I have been married 17 years now, um, and we met when we were 18 because we were Christians, mm-hmm. so we didn't want to have sex before marriage. That's why we got married at 20. <laughs> um, and and uh, so... we. But I remember early in our marriage, like we were having this conversation and we were working through what each other meant. Our expectations are based on our relationships with our parents. We thought obviously every family runs like the one we grew up in and they don't. Uh, And and she's like, the way she said it was like, as if this was a real question. Okay. Okay. I get what's going on, Tripp. I know. But I mean, you do love me, right? And I was just mad. I'm like, I love you. But we got married. I... Do I need to repeat my vows to you? You know, and I have this like indignance. Like I'm like I already said I was going to do it. I don't lie. Like obviously mm-hmm. I'm going to. And she's looking at me like you, you like you really believe like that you've been at weddings where people get divorced, right? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to. And and she goes, but I don't I don't want you to have picked me one day and now you're stuck in some situation. I want us to choose each other each day. Not because we have to, because we get to, right? And I and I and I remember saying, not because we have to, because we get to. 
And that line then got reapplied to how I understood my faith. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, I don't have to follow Jesus. I don't have to be a Christian. I don't have to do these things. I get to. Mm-hmm. And why do I get to? And what about this religious tradition means a lot to me and has shaped me and, and you know, preserves a mystery and calls something out of me and makes demands upon me. Uh, it's not because I have to. And no one wants to hear a, don't you want to join my religion because you have to talk. Yeah. But the thing is, like, I mean, you've even had conversations with the, the Muslim politician from Virginia. What was In Qasim. Yeah. Street, yeah. Okay. So I'll, when I was listening to it, I heard someone who loved their tradition had no interest in just converting you on the spot. Mm-hmm. But once you know, he didn't have to do any of that. Yeah. He gets to do it. Mm-hmm. And then it shows up in the way him and his wife serve. You know, she's in um, medicine. He's serving the community uh, and, and doing service, you know, uh, political service and stuff. And you hear it and you go, ah. But whatever was going on in that That's good, yeah. was beautiful, and Christianity has a way it's beautiful, uh, a bunch of ways, actually. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was the, the way the beauty and the mystery binds a community so we have ways to talk, think, and experiment together. That was all, it was the most attractive part. And it wasn't like, well, I, you know, I said it, I believe it, that settles it, mm-hmm. and if you force me to, I'll quote a Bible verse at you. <laughs> And so, like, sometimes, you know, sometimes your marriage vows are are the reason you don't do something you want to do. And sometimes they're the reason you discover all the things you get to do. So, you have a book called uh, Jesus, uh, Liar, Lunatic, Lord, or Just Awesome. Uh, and this is kind of a riff off. So, C.S. Lewis had this uh, famous trilemma, it's called, and he says, well, either Jesus is... A liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. You don't really have another option. You have to, you have to call him one of these things. You've decided not to play that game. So how how do you get out of Lewis's little logic trap here? Well, well, one I just say, Jesus didn't take that approach, mm-hmm. so I don't feel obligated to make Jesus more of an asshole than he was. I, like <laughs> the, I mean, part of the book is really uh, a frustration I have that most Christians, the least the ones that people hear from on a consistent basis, when they describe God, their vision of God, who's often a male, um, is not nearly as nice as his son, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that if God, and the Christians tend to think this, revealed who God was in a person, mm-hmm. then God should at least be as nice as Jesus. And most Christian the- theologies, God is uh, working on it. Probably in recovery for a very bad violence issue early on. Took it out on his kid, and now uh, whoever is friends with him can come over and spend the night for eternity. Um, And we hope he doesn't get upset again. But so just like that formula, right? Like if someone gives it to you, like you told your friend who knows you, your faith matters to you. Like, so is he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? Like, what are your options? I either am going to agree with my friend and join his religion or (laughs) be like, Hey, Dustin, um, I know Jesus is a big deal to you, but I think he's a lunatic. <laughs> like, he's crazy. Like, uh, I mean, he makes Donald Trump look sane. And I can't believe you follow him. Or he's a liar. <laughs> like, yeah. that, like, both the other options are just being mean, yeah. right? I feel like there's probably a number of people that chose Lord just because they were nice and or were conflict avoiders, mm-hmm. right? And so... That framing of it is problematic. The other side is, 
we don't have to go through it, but just like assume since I have a PhD in it, that's at least plausible. Large numbers of New Testament scholars would say Jesus never makes a claim that he's God. Mm-hmm. The historical Jesus. Yeah. If you want to talk about the Gospels and all that kind of stuff, you can come back to it or not. But just like, I mean, even conservative New Testament scholars would say Jesus never said I'm God mm-hmm. uh, in any sense. So the biggest thing for me is the Gospels themselves are not questions about who Jesus is. They're all Gospels. Right? A gospel is a story about Jesus the Christ. So you're not trying to figure out if he's Lord or not. The question is, what does it mean for him to be the Christ? What does it mean for him to be Lord? And in the gospels, the disciples consistently get it wrong. They get the answer correct, right? When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? Mm-hmm. He goes, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Right? And right before that, the other disciples, said, when he asked them, who do they say I am? He goes, oh, maybe you're Elijah, come back. Or you're John the Baptist. I guess the head got stuck back on or whatever. Right? And there are these answers. And all of those are plausible answers in that history. Because then when Jesus responds to, to Peter, who said, you're the Christ, son of the living God, he doesn't go, well, that's obviously true. The evidence demands that verdict. Thank you. And I really hope that you wrote that down so you could have a very popular apologetics book later and uh, use it to witness um, at, at college campuses around the world. No, he goes, my father in heaven revealed that to you. Right. So even Jesus' identity as a Christ is not demanded from uh, history or from the objective yeah, it's, it's facts. Not a, it's, yeah, it's not putting the pieces together and getting the right answer. No. Yeah. God reveals it to you. And then Peter's like, I feel pretty awesome. <laughs> right? And then, then just a chapter or two later in, in uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get in a discussion about um, uh, where they're going next. And they're after the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses show up, and, uh, and, and Peter's like, this is awesome. We should build booths. Jesus is like, nope, let's go to Jerusalem. And then Pete's like, whoa, you know they're going to kill you there, right? And Jesus says, yeah, the Son of Man's going to go and die. Don't worry. I got this three-day thing, right? And Jesus is gets mad at, at Peter for thinking uh, that he should avoid facing with the principalities and powers, the political and religious elite in Jerusalem. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Because he knew the correct answer, you're the Christ, but he didn't know the content yeah. that, that he was going to show down with the imperial power and the perverse religious leaders. And he was going to get and he was going to defeat them not by building a cross to stick the right people on it, but by bearing it and undoing and breaking the cycle of victim and violator and, and this type of thing. Right? So to me, the question of Jesus isn't like, do you want to label him correctly? But can you see the way in which he embodies the divine in a subversive way that actually provides us answers and rhythms and liturgies and stories to wrestle with the things that bind us as humans? Uh, And one of those is the myth of redemptive violence. Mm -hmm. And why does Peter get him wrong? Because he thought that he could actually fulfill his identity as the Christ without facing off with the political and religious leaders of his day. And he thought maybe when we face off, we should bring a sword. And Jesus is like, you don't even get this at all. And you see it consistently. I mean, there's a whole bunch of themes. Uh, they, they think that the, 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 the kingdom of God, the movement of God, um, has boundaries with ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. Like, there's so many little places they want to, to close it off or to imagine it being like the slightly nicer version of Rome or something like that. And it's not. When I was in college and a philosophy uh, major and 
had like postmodern myself into uh, not knowing if anything is true, mm-hmm. but also being aware. Which we're going there next. The social science uh, points that participating in religious tradition is good because of our evolutionary inheritance for communal participation. I decided <laughs> I was checking out all the religions to see which one I wanted to be, um, and it was you know leading up to Easter, and every year leading up to Easter since I was. Uh, probably in elementary school, I've read the passion stories in all four gospels, the last week of Jesus' life, mm-hmm. entry into Jerusalem on, and I was doing it again. And, and now, and like, and I was the type of like postmodern post-structuralist that could ruin, ruin a party by just like <laughs> letting them, you know, like you're having fun and, and they're like, Oh, you didn't think that was funny. I was like, why? You want me to laugh and hope to cover up our, Finitude and impending death and uh, the recognition that this is all just a distraction from, you know, like that type of person. It, I didn't wear it well. Um, but uh, I, I, was, I was in that moment and I and it was really bothersome to me because I didn't like uh, I just intellectually thought religion was stupid. It wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I, I like communal singing and fried chicken, which is all you need to like to be religious in the south i mean i think there's something to that idea of like the symbols the ways you have of looking at the world that you grew up with like, it's hard to acquire a whole new set of symbols and it, i don't think it means that you can't right you can but they're maybe never going to go as deep in some way but i do think you can still like you can stay in a tradition and become open to a whole variety of other traditions that are beautiful and mm-hmm. and learn from those symbols and let them interact with your own and oh yeah well and obviously if you're a philosophical theologian that's one way that uh, you just go in debt to do so so <laughs> i mean it depends on who i'm talking to how much i talk about because i am a minister right like i'm ordained and i serve the eucharist i baptize people and all that kind of stuff. So some types of openness, how you say them and when you say them, uh, I try to be judicious about. <laughs> I have put a lot of energy and spiritual investment in learning from Dallas. Every time I read the Tao and stuff, it's like you're jo- going to this different universe. And it's like new love. And I don't. I, I'll like get into something, search it, find out about like an argument about interpretation of a verse and read three things about it. Then, you know, go talk to an actual Taoist professor who's like, I remember Sunday school, you know, like, you know, like when someone comes to you, if you've been a theologian for a while, they're like, do you know that the church, when they were arguing about like ministers that turned over the Bible in the early church, like, do you have to get rebaptized if someone like rep- like gives the Bible to Rome and it gets burnt? Like, is, or does a minister fall? Does everyone they get baptized fall? Like, what do you do about that? And then like Augustine won the argument and said, baptism works because God made you and loves you and not because of who did it. So after that, all these people that are having all these fights just realize, like, like it's not about the minister; it's about the love of God. And so even though I may have grown up with some like shitty youth minister who told me horrible things <laughs> and blah, 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 I could have encountered God there. And like, that's what Augustine was talking about. And I, you know, if someone said that to me, which has happened before, I'm like, 
Yeah, but it was called the lapse controversy, just to be clear. You're like, and but I've done that when talking to uh, <laughs> to people of other religious traditions. When you find like this nugget and you start wrestling with it and playing with it, and they're like, it's uh, old news. Yeah, yeah, they're like, ah, oh, young Padawan. <laughs> I could just become a Jedi. Yeah. It's it's a religion over here, I think. I've I think people it put it in. in in the UK. Oh. Well, I, but here's the sad thing. I met a guy that put that on there. He's should not be a Jedi. If I have <laughs> put zero days in like claiming the to be a member of the Jedi religion and I'm and like he hadn't even read the comic books. Like how can you be on Jedi and not have read like the Star Wars comic books, where you get all the back history on a number of different Jedi. You don't even know what Yoda did when he encountered a planet that was not a part of the Empire. So you have the experience of Force-sensitive people who cultivated an alternative mythopoetic relationship to it because it was never a part of the larger Galactic Empire in anything, or the Republic. So, like, Yoda shows up as, like, basically a a force-bearing missionary to define to find there's a whole planet of people who have interacted with the force and they have their own relationship with it. And he does violence by introducing Jedi ways and things to it. Like, you never even read that. I have and, not you know, read that. That sounds fascinating. Oh, it is good. It is good. Oh, I know, but you're not like a Jedi member of the Jedi religion yet. Well, here's... But I... I if right, you're gonna we're, join... We're, this is Jedi sidebar. So at this point, looking at Jedi stuff like they're they've started to introduce these themes of gray force wielders, mm-hmm. right? It seems like the Jedi are doing a bunch of stuff wrong. Like, oh yeah, like that's like the whole. I mean, screws Anakin up. He's he's in love. But he can't yes. express his love because it's like no, you don't get to do that, and it turns him crazy. Oh, look, <laughs> I I I know enough people that were, uh, you know, victims Vicus dating goodbye to know that that is not. Not the best way to handle uh, <laughs> saucy sixteen-year-olds. Yeah. Uh, the and not only that. Think about this. Like, if you're going, I think you would be better to have your own religion centered around the Force rather than the Jedi, because the Jedi saw the center of their power as by being the protectorate yeah. of mm-hmm. the Republic, right as it goes into the Sith Lord's hands. Oh yeah. Also, here's what they do. They go around from planet to planet, and everyone that's Force-sensitive, they take them from that planet's culture, mm-hmm. religious symbols, myths, and everything, and put them in the capital city of a place with no nature in it, which is weird, because they... Anyway. Yeah. And then uh, they tell them that their Force-sensitiveness is primarily to be understood as a servant of the one powerful political regime. Yeah, it's super imperialistic. I it's- know. I think that's why I would say I'm more Force-sensitive than a Jedi. Mm. The Jedi... Being gray uh, is something I think has always been the case. It's just uh, they thought they were more light than they set up for the Sith. And Luke's like the person who, um, you know, has both before him. And he's only successful not by by being nonviolent, like even in The Last Jedi, right? Like he force projects there. You think you're finally going to get a nice lightsaber battle (laughs) again after years and years of waiting. And you don't even get it. You get a fake one, and uh, were you sad about that? I, I I like the move, but 
a complete aside. Not that I don't side of a side. An aside of a side. I love the fact that the tree of the original mm-hmm. Jedi gathering place gets burned down. Yeah. Yoda burns it down. Ray steals the sacred text and puts it and smuggles them onto the Millennium Falcon. So there are these truths, these powers for the story, this all, everything that's in these texts, but we can't, they don't even speak life anymore. If it's in that same old tree with the same old institution and all this type mm-hmm. of stuff behind it. But we aren't just going to burn it down and start all over again. We're going to smuggle out the beauty of this tradition and, and the text. And what does Yoda say? She has all she already needs. And he thinks, like, she doesn't have the text. What's going to happen? I don't know. I don't think I realized she smuggled the text. Yeah, they're in the Millennium Falcon. Uh, it, it, later in the book, uh, you see her cover them up with a uh, thing. Uh, and I'm like, like, basically, it's a subtle way of telling the future of Christianity is the liberation theology. But I think that's what it meant. Why, why don't you tell people what liberation theology okay, is? Okay, so liberation theology are theologies that emerge from people on the underside. Um uh, considering who got to read and write for most of Western history, mm-hmm. it meant when you asked people what Christians thought, you were asking people who uh, could read and write, which tends to be the 1%, and ones that were uh, uh, Holy Roman Empire adjacent. Yeah. So uh, when you get to the 20th century, you have a number of different movements, black theology in America with people like James Cone mm. or Gustavo Gutierrez, John, John Sabrino and stuff in Latin America. You have the emergence of, of feminist theology, Mujerista theology, which is feminist Latin American theology. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of different theologies that come from specific situations with the assumption that if all of humanity bears the image of God, then to understand the fullness of the image of God, you actually have to have all of humanity get to speak and talk and share about their experience mm-hmm. and encounter of the divine. And if the way we've learned to re- relate to our tradition, to relate to our stories, our, tra- our scriptures and stuff, has been with the guidance of those who are comfortable with the world as it is, mm-hmm. then how do you think they're going to interpret text that tell us that God's not comfortable with the world as it is? Mm. Uh, so God takes sides with the poor and consistently. God was like, Pharaoh, no. And Jesus had showdowns as well, and it runs through Scripture. Yeah. And yet the people for most of church history were the literal <laughs> emperors yeah. who were compatible. So liberation theologies are ones that recognize Jesus looks a whole lot more like the oppressed than the oppressor. And when they started wrestling with the tradition, the scriptures and such, all these insights just are plain as day to them that we didn't see because we only were in congregations as first world people of privilege, where our privilege and our space in the world is being preserved. And it wasn't like people did it mean to us, right? Like, it's just you don't know how to read from a perspective that you have not set in. Yeah. Right? So when you hear people from other situations read a text and wrestle with it, then the same parable you heard a million times sounds completely different uh, just because different life experience was there. And God has chosen in Christ to identify with those who are broken by systems of power. And why I was saying, like, uh, I think just thinking about the Star Wars thing, like you have these treasures. What is it that's been keeping the force locked in a binary where they battle back and forth? It's a battle between the Sith and the Jedi. And neither one of them 
honestly, like Darth is the one that takes out the Emperor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and what is it that breaks the binary? It's the love of a parent for a son. Um, but the the Force was always this thing we had to put in this binary, and then they have this ongoing battle. And then Ray goes down, sees all the mirrors, like, who am I? What is this story? Um, and she only sees herself right in the underworld mm-hmm. area or whatever. And apparently there's that in the trailer for the next one, uh, some other type of like force showdown with dark Ray from that one bit in the trailer that freaked me out. I saw it. I'm so pumped, but <laughs> from the last Jedi, you get this. No, we aren't doing nostalgia. What does the force look like outside of this old binary? And where are we going to uncover its life? But in the smugglers ship, so, yeah. like, take the treasure from the tradition, leave the institution that brought death and the binaries with it, put it on a ship, and you smuggle it on. Yeah, I'm into that. If we're going to stay with Star Wars, which we can, uh, I find it odd how many people identify with the rebellion, with the resistance, and don't see that they live in a society that embodies empire. You, you're rooting for these people who where like their analogs in current day life you would generally call terrorists. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's fascinating. You know, one of the things that one of the reasons I think that's the case historically is that the first trilogy was a Cold War trilogy. Mm-hmm. So um a lot of the earliest fans viewed it in a Cold War context. Yeah. But George Lucas, one of the good things about the second trilogy, um, and uh, is not Jar Jar Binks, but uh, th- is that he then uses the prequels to problematize that boundary. I prepared, because I was teaching a class called uh, Force Sensitive Theology and Culture with Star Wars. So like using the three trilogies, the three periods mm-hmm. in American history and how it reads the sacred and the secular and the powerful power struggles in it. Um, so I read a lot of background things. So um, the other trilogy, you know, is 9-11 time, right? Like that's a big event that shapes it. And unlike the baby boomers who have proceeded to be in charge in our country, like he was sad. Like he regretted, like think of early baby boomer existence, Mm -hmm. right? His earliest uh, movie, um, what was it? Graffiti. American uh, Graffiti. Yeah, American Graffiti and things. Like you get this picture of a cultural moment where the young can like push and resist against certain parts of uh, their parents' previous Mm -hmm. uh, order and stuff. And then you get all all the, uh, the love and peace and such of the late sixties and early seventies. And, Oh, we're got the cold war. We're at this peak nationalism. We win. And then we're like, you know what we need? Trickle down, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, you get that all the way into the biggest embarrassment is making crap up to go to war. Yeah. And and he had this one interview where he said, you know, I was having dinner with a bunch of my friends. We had been to friends for a long time. And when I realized only one other person there was disappointed we were going to war. And it wasn't because we were, you know, that where that what party they were in. It's because they just blindly thought America was good. Yeah. Like he started talking about th- that sadness and that's why he wanted to problematize it. Right? Cuz you pick up with the aftermath of that failure with Luke in four, five, and six. Yeah. Um, but Yoda didn't know. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the. the yeah, the Jedi were were blind to all that stuff. They were they're part of it. 
Mace Windu like had the had to face the moment of like, do you kill Hitler or not? Mm. Like when he has yeah. the Emperor in there and and he's like, you got to arrest him. No, we got to take him out now. I haven't watched those in a while because they make me sad in so many ways. But the the political stuff is actually pretty interesting. <laughs> that was alongside. Hey everyone, I wanted to let you know that you can become an active participant in the crafting of the content of the show by supporting us on Patreon. Becoming a patron will give you access at different tiers to a variety of rewards, including additional patron-only episodes, the ability to submit questions for our guests and to interact online with me and other patrons, and could even mean an appearance on an episode to ask me your own questions. And by joining by the end of the year, you'll automatically become a member of the Flint and Steel Founders Club and will receive an exclusive enamel pin as well as more rewards in the future. If you're digging this podcast and want to join me and others like you in our pursuit of the good, the true, and the beautiful, then joining us on patreon is the best way to do it sign up today at patreon.com forward slash carry the fire pod all right let's get back to the show so in your book jesus lunatic lord or just awesome uh you break down postmodern consciousness into five categories Mm -hmm. uh and i feel like it'd be really helpful to just riff slightly on those. So you break it down. The first one was historical consciousness. What's yeah, it will. And, and it's the five parts of postmodern consciousness. And 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 why I why I like chose the word consciousness is because, uh, especially in religious context, people argue about what postmodernity is, and then they argue about what that would mean and whether they like it or not. <laughs> and my whole thing is like, you don't get to pick what part of history you're born in. And it's kind of—I was just trying to describe the water we're in. Yes. So, like, you—it's—it's it's a value-free description. It's just you can't take it back. And I'm—you can ignore it. You can, and then you sound like you're from the 17th century, mm-hmm. right? So, my thought is, if you're talking about who Jesus is, which is what the book's about, right? Like. It talks about the historical Jesus, his own period in history, how the church has seen him over different periods of time, what it's, and all these different ways people are understanding Jesus in contemporary contexts and things. If the way that you articulate the the identity and work of God in Christ today doesn't can't be heard in our context and isn't connected to it, then then don't expect to matter. Yeah. Right. Like there are just certain questions that we have to face that we can't undo. Um, and so postmodern consciousness, I describe in five different parts. Um, and when you say like the first one's a historical one, and if you, there's tons of things that are historical that we didn't know were. Like the most obvious one is we have access to a whole lot more about the historical Jesus than most Christians ever did. We understand what Judaism was like prior to the destruction of the temple in 70, uh, then overwhelming majority of church history. So we understand the Jewish context of Jesus in ways most Christians have never had access to. Um, We understand how the different parts of the New Testament were constructed and edited over time, uh, where they came from, at what points in time, uh, a lot of different stuff. Right, maybe, so maybe try to apply it like outside of just like what I want people to hear is <laughs> the ways that we should be skeptical of of uh, how tightly we hold to like our understanding of of truth in a sense. Oh yeah, so I mean, so like historical consciousness is uh, pointing out 
that we all are aware we're in a history, we came from a history, and that you find yourself in a history the moment you're born into the world. And where you're born in the world, at what point and part of it it is, completely shapes what is and isn't available to you, what language you're going to use, what symbols you're going to use, and different things like that. Yeah. Uh, for example, your religious identity. If you think it's ultimately ultimate, and you ask yourself why I had it, it probably has something to do with what country you were born in. Because if you and I were born, and we're almost identical, even the same genetics, but in Turkey... We would be having a conversation before a different type of music being played at a concert uh, with uh, a different religious rhythm growing up. Yeah. And we would have just paused to pray. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Part of historical consciousness means like you can't just say without, you know, some weird flute going through your head that like where you found yourself in history and in the world and all your historical context is uh, perfectly attuned for truth. Yeah. And where everyone else just isn't. It's, it's a big coincidence for you. Yeah. And the weird, and everyone else thinks that they're in the same spot. Yeah, but in the reason we hold where we're thrown in the world so closely, even if it's accidental, it in that accident we also find access to the most beautiful, deep parts of things. All right, the next one would be social consciousness. I mean, social consciousness is the awareness that our society frames what is and isn't possible for large numbers of people, and it, and so many different factors change, change it. When you inherit a social order, then your values, the rhythms of your life and things come with it. You didn't sit around and decide what part of of consumer capitalism and the nation state we were going to appreciate. Yeah. Like it's there. And those things so structure our lives that we end up making most of our decisions to at least meet the basic obligations we have to taxes, citizenry, and figuring out how to make certain amounts of money. And all those things in our society are determined by our race, gender, class, and all sorts of other things in our society. Yeah. It's not just that that happens. It's that we're aware of it that mm -hmm. I'm trying to point out. Right? So when you talk about something like white privilege, a category like that, you're saying we are now conscious of the fact all these different powers are at play in the whole, the social whole. Even if us as individuals think we're trying to do the good all the time, mm -hmm. you could be a, a person with privilege doing the good, and you're still benefiting from a, a, a destructive power at the whole, or it could be the other way around, right? Like yeah. social consciousness is that moment where you can see how society is, is structured, and you are playing a part in it, and you didn't get to pick the one you get. And the society is going to keep on functioning whether you want to cooperate or not. And so you're simultaneously complicit in certain things, benefiting from other things, but it's it's all woven fabric. Every time you watch the news, you can find it. There's a lot of pushback on this idea right now, like in our country. Well, not this country, but the one you and I were born in. Probably all over the place. There's pushback, I think, probably mostly from ones who are comfortable with the place that they are in, in society with having to try to grapple with the idea that, that maybe other people have not, don't actually have, like, it's the myth that it's like all equal, that like it's really yeah. equal opportunity for, for everyone in every sense. Well, uh, 
I can't remember if it it was one of the Southern Republican senators the other day on a Sunday talk show responded to someone who was talking about uh, that the series, uh, the 1619 series in the mm-hmm. New York Times about reparations and oh, 1619 is the first year we had slaves come yeah. to North America. But he said, look, look, I'm not saying that there's not structural inequalities and blah, 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 blah. But like essentially what you're suggesting is too much. Mm. Right. And I just wanted to pause it for a second and just say, you realize how different the situation is. Like, once you just say, it is a reality. Yeah. Right? And it's the recognition of that reality. And how could he not shake it? Because they literally brought up the names of seven or eight people you watched white cops kill. And then the cops got off by killing black bodies. Yeah. And the person asked, like, are you telling me if nine white people were shown getting killed by cops after they were subdued Mm -hmm. (laughs) in South Carolina that the cops would be getting off? Yeah. And is the answer is no. You know, it's one of those things like you want to go like, and they shouldn't. <laughs> like yeah. It's not because they want them to get off. Like everyone knows it's the other way. We should not have a society yes. where fear is so instilled in one group of people over another one that because they're in a asymmetrical relationship of power, like a police and someone they're you know arresting without a weapon, that that fear leads them to overreact out of a type of prejudice that they were born into and did not pick. Yeah. And what I'm wanting to emphasize is not like any particular interpretation. I'm just telling you that if you go read medieval Europe, their of their self-awareness about their location in the society is significantly less. Yeah. And society mirrored God's eternal hierarchical structure structure. So like where you were in it was not where you some place you planned on moving from or to a different location. It was a, a Divine, nice great chain ordained. of being. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Next we have pluralist consciousness. So pluralist consciousness is the recognition that a either or a relationship of your religion to all others is no longer a viable performed option. I mean you may really think everyone else gets eternal conscious torment but you're kind. But it doesn't work anymore because on everyone's neighborhood are going to be people that are decent neighbors that practice multiple religions or no religion. Mm -hmm. And pluralist consciousness is the recognition that the non-religion or the non-Christian other, if you're Christian, uh, has an experience of the world that you cannot inscribe into your own religious world as, you know, like heathen, Mm-hmm. Uh, inadequate, yeah. not fully human. You're just like walking around with a giant Jesus-shaped hole. Um, <laughs> like pluralist consciousness is, is the recognition that we that Christianity's truth, if it's all truth and the best truth, is not compelling enough to get everyone to join your team once they hear about it. So we have to learn to live in a world where there are multiple religious narratives that are non-competitive, at least culturally. Uh, at play. Yeah. Kind of what the show is dealing with in a sense, like trying to raise, I guess, pluralist consciousness of, because uh, I mean, some people don't have, you know, XYZ as their neighbors or people they actually interact with. And I think, uh, I think media can be, I know Twitter for me has been super helpful to, to be able to 
experience and see through other lenses of, of people that I, I, I don't know I would really have access to otherwise. So I think, I think that's what I'm trying to do with the show is just another avenue of letting but I mean, someone in. But you, but you live in Southern California, so you could, within an hour drive, go worship at every religious tradition, including atheist get-togethers on Sunday morning that mimic evangelical megachurch. Like another example is like it's pluralistic culturally, right? Like you could eat almost every cuisine on the planet yeah. done really well by people that are first generation in the United States. Like that, those are not options in uh, most of history that people no, got yes. that, that type of tactile. Like we hang out, our kids go to school together mm-hmm. and we can eat each other's food. If we're getting an argument, it's an argument where we're all voting and still like not shooting each other the next day. Yeah. That's amazing and it's awesome. But Christianity for a long time because of its connection I think partially to western imperial expansion saw its meta narrative, its sacred canopy um that it interpreted all existence in as definitional to the point that the other did not get the same privilege. Yeah. To understand their relationship to the world filtered and colored by their signs, their symbols, their stories, their narratives. And so then you end up in this place where if someone comes under, you know, this canopy and the sun shining through and it has all your, you're, you're inscribing them in a Christian story, you're either going to convert them or like label them yeah. as heathen. You just can't, it, you can't just live with them. Yeah. And, yeah. and, it, and all the thing is, it, it, then it usually sounds like. Um, they're supposed to already understand themselves as sinners before a God that could put them in eternal conscious torment. And so, like, when you think your religion's the only one with access to God and you're interacting across difference, like, your goal, your step one to telling them the gospel becomes something that's kind of not helpful. Uh, <laughs> like, I know, I know you haven't, you don't see yourself as a sinner. And you're not personally hoping to avoid hell. You may not even think you live after your body died, but nonetheless, you do. Let me convince you of it. And have you ever lied to somebody? Because that's, you know, um, and I say that just because, like, let's say you do think Christianity is the one true religion. The others are approximations and everyone should be one. Okay, well, if you recognize pluralist consciousness, you should pre- pick, really strategically pick a different sermon. Like, you don't have to inscribe someone in your whole narrative before you tell them the good news. Like, they don't have to see themselves as a sinner and in need. Mm-hmm. The gospel is actually beautiful and can be compelling without telling someone they suck first. And oddly enough, Jesus didn't really go around doing that. And Paul, which they tend to use when they make that version, didn't either, right? It, it You become a new creation, and then you see your old self. But it wasn't old until you became new. Or mm. you see your sinful self after you have this experience of belonging to the eternal that then makes, ah, look at that old me. Uh, it's like uh, when I got a new car, when my family got a new car uh, growing up, we had this one that all of a sudden became the old one. And it did smell bad and have stuff <laughs> all in it. But it was not the old car until yeah. we got the new one. But when we got the new one, we're like, and we used to drive that, you know? And I think like there are ways in a, pluralist consciousness that you can authentically share the gifts you've received from the divine out of your tradition that are not threatening to the other. And if they want to encounter an experience that you can share it with them. 
see, then you're not forcing them into your narrative. You're sharing. Yeah. And that's like a small shift you could have without changing your theology. You would also just be less annoying. That's a, <laughs> that's the other side. <laughs> like, then they might tell you about their religious tradition, and uh, um, it, you know, your your kids can play on the same sports teams, <laughs> and it awesome. doesn't get weird. <laughs> All right, what is cosmic consciousness? For most of human history, what the way we told cosmogenies, which is just mythopoetic cosmologies, the Earth is the center of the universe, and it's not that old. Mm-hmm. Now, you could say the exact same thing you said uh, when you were in your confirmation class. They're like, who is Jesus Christ? And you're like, second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, to start quoting all them Bible verses. And with cosmological consciousness, you just also have to be aware that you're talking about a homeless first century Jew on one planet and in a mediocre solar system and there's billions of solar systems in our galaxy and there's billions of galaxies. Yeah. Right? Like we used to think this is the main stage and now you found out like you're at a And we killed people for saying it wasn't yeah. <laughs> like now so Edinburgh where I'm from is like the biggest uh festival, the fringe festival. Biggest arts festival. And uh, I was talking to someone about his it. is like, at peak time, there are over 400 different performances taking place in this town. Wow. At, uh, you know, at peak time on weekends during the festival. That would be depressing if you thought you were, like, main staging that. Now, like, imagine you're just on one planet, and there's millions and millions of other solar systems and millions of galaxies. And so the cosmological consciousness is just to say, like, what if the language we normally talk about the particularity of our religious tradition, uh, what does it sound like when there's this many other planets? Yeah. Who knows how many of them have sentient life on it? You know, underneath it, I think that pluralist consciousness and all that kind of stuff, it's like uh, when your kids give you a mug that says, you're the world's greatest dad, <laughs> and your friend got one too, like, you, it doesn't, they like... battle. You don't, like, look at them and be like, piece of shit. I'm the world's greatest dad. I have the mug. And he's like, what? I got three of them. Look how many times I've, you know, and and you're, like, in a fight. What you recognize and what they have is something that you have. Like, a kid that thought they didn't have to lie while handing you a mug that told you something you probably don't know is actually accurate. But (laughs) you're like, I am in the top half. Right? Like, and so... But that's not the type of, that's not how you're using language when a kid tells their parent, like, you're the best mom in the world, you're the best dad in the world. When you tell your partner, I love you more than life itself, I think you might be the coolest human that's ever existed. And I have no idea why I get to be with you every day. Like, I've said that to my wife, and if she's frustrated at me, she will look at me like, trip, that's complete bullshit. And you know it. Like, like, and then she'll sit there and go, like, very rational. You realize, like, if I died today, at some other point, you would say that same thing to someone else you fell in love with. Like, and go on. And, and I'm like, that's not the point at all. 
<laughs> and so the cosmological consciousness, pluralist consciousness, I think begs us to go back to that gap I was talking about and how religious language symbols and myths function and what is it getting at. It's getting itself done in a very poetic way, mm-hmm. just like you're the greatest dad in the world or I love you from here to the stars and back or whatever those things yeah. are. They aren't true like a math syllogism. Yeah. They're true like a love poem. Mm-hmm. But no one goes, that's crap. I want everything in my life to be ring true like Pythagoras. <laughs> and in fact, everyone that knows math and does it all the time, like high octane math, you'll have nine, ten different formulas that solve the exact same thing. Mathematicians pick the one they use and teach all their students by which one is most beautiful. That is the hermeneutic of high-octane math. Uh, a couple physicists that, that I was sitting next to uh, last week, I had a discussion with them about uh, different interpretations of quantum mechanics. And they ultimately were going back and forth. They're like, yeah, yeah, but that's not nearly as beautiful as. And I'm like, what? That's awesome. That's, that's how you decide math equations? And uh, But it, I just say it because the... Uh, how many people have experienced religion passing on these stories, rituals, myths, all these things that can seize you and grasp you like uh, like you have this experience when you're like, you know, singing at a live concert and all that kind of stuff. And everyone starts singing your song with you and you're like, holy cow, what's going on here? And they're like, the moment you wrote it, it's connecting with this awesome moment. And they're present and there's like something amazing. And you're like, I don't know how to talk about it. I'll just sing the song right now. Or you're holding eye contact while you're making love. There at no point do you go, I really hope the sperm connects to the egg because <laughs> then I can have a child and I'll be reproducing my genes. And like, that just doesn't happen. There's this like whole depth dimension of life that's beautiful and amazing and mysterious. And if you thought that the true part about it was the equation part, it would not be good. But for some reason, a lot of people think religions are about the equation. Like Every time Richard Dawkins talks about Christianity, he's like, the most Christian ones are the ones that think their Bible functions like a math equation. And I'm like, what is your problem? Like, like you are not dumb. Like you're one of the you're one of the smartest biologists for years, and they I know people that are your friends. They say you're a good friend, and he loves throwing dinner parties and coming up with putting placements where people are going to have fun conversations and check in. How can you curate the beauty of conversation around people you all enjoy and think? Well, I don't think I could ever be religious because God told them to kill the Canaanites. You're like, what? It's just dumb. It's just it's just bad. Like, did you throw the throw the mug back at your kid when they're like, "You're the best dad in the world." You're like, "I'm not. My dad is." <laughs> <laughs> like, it, anyway. So, uh, but I do think, and I don't say that in a deflationary way. I'm like, well, now it's just poetry. No, like poetry is something humans do. We don't know another species that does it. Uh, whatever gets itself done. In art, in beauty, in lovemaking, we can we can write out music and look at it, and it's nothing like hearing it. Yeah, you can look at Beethoven, but it's better to hear it. And whatever the difference is between the two, I'm saying the reason it's written is so that people hear it. So, like when Christians say, "What is the mystery of the world like?" and we go. Well, the image of the invisible God requires a story about a homeless first century Jew whose mom, from the time he was in, his, in her womb, said, ah, God's not done yet. 
We're going to tear the powerful down and build the weak up. Those that are full and protecting themselves are going to go empty because God has come to fill up those with nothing. That's how the story begins. Then what's it look like? Well, it looks like someone who managed to piss off everyone who protected their identities by preserving privilege and imprisoning people in the boundaries that gave them power. And it looks like liberation for those that thought they had no home, no community, no space. That's why a lot of theologians today have tried to shift from theology to theopoetics. It's not because what we're doing is different. It's because we recognize what it is that we're doing. Mm. So when we talk about postmodern consciousness and those shifts, I think it gives us occasions to then think, how do we talk about the truth, aware of the situation we're in? It means we aren't going to be clinging to the wrong parts by thinking you can grasp the truth and hold it. Yeah. You much more attend to it, you know, open-handed style. You keep making this move from the true to the beautiful. Would you connect that to, uh, you paraphrase Kierkegaard in the book, it says for Kierkegaard, truth is not a set of propositions, uh, you know, things you choose to believe or disbelieve, but a mode of being in the world. Uh, would you connect that to that idea of like truth being lived in beauty almost? Well, Kierkegaard, the mode of being in the world... And part of it for him, and he's a you know, Danish, 19th century Danish philosopher, is that he was a good enough philosopher to know that no one's going to ultimately win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like uh, I remember the first time I, in college when I went to one of those Christian campus groups and they brought in an apologetic specialist. It was real depressing because <laughs> he talked for three hours and there was still a line of questions and I don't think they would have quit if he didn't quit. Yeah. Right. Like, and so it's not because he wasn't thoughtful and logical or whatever. It's just that, uh, Kierkegaard was the kind of, the kind of theologian that was like, well, if you were to prove the whole thing, you would know it wasn't correct. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, whatever the infinite is, whatever ultimate existence, truth and such is, it's not going to be something that you get to, this way. Yeah. And so there was a famous debate, and out of it, there is a, a, a historian philosopher, Lessing, who uh, was in an argument with the historical Jesus types of his day. Right? So this is early days of the historical Jesus movement. And they're like, we're trying to prove the historical Jesus, and obviously we prove everything historically. You'll know that it's accurate. Yeah. And you'll obviously ask him in your life. Praise the Lord. You know, then the, the antagonists are like, no, but what about this? What about this? And Kierkegaard's like hearing these debates going back and forth, and he starts pulling for the skeptic because he would hate for someone to think that they became a Christian just because they believed a series of things were historical and a truth was demanded of it. Because mm-hmm. what truth demands of you is not your assent, but yourself. And so what Kierkegaard's getting at is that faith involves giving yourself to something. It's like same thing like you think of when you fall in love, you're giving yourself to it or it pulled you in or you got sucked in. And you can know when you're talking to your friend and there's like so down the love hole, like 
whatever it is that they were before is not the same thing you're talking to. Mm-hmm. And that's not, and if you were like, now you realize she might not be the best for you. Like, it's just not even going to yeah. work anymore. <laughs> like, like it, there's no, the, the decision-making process is over, right? Like Kierkegaard's like, like faith is like leaping into this other mode of life. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's not something you're putting on or putting off or assenting to or saying yes or no to. Um, and the other part about it is, and it's the other part of the consciousness thing we didn't get to is false consciousness, yeah. is he thought if if the truth of any religion is something they think they can prove, who knows how many people will never even hear about the religion. So he's in Denmark, and when, you, when you're born, the, the state church baptizes babies, and that's also when you became a citizen. And so Kierkegaard, if you asked me if he's a Christian, he goes, no, but I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. I might become one. And that's because if everyone's a Christian, then no one is. He's like, what does the word even mean? You're baptizing babies and now they're a citizen and a Christian at the same time? Like, how does that work? Have they read the New Testament? You know? And so the false consciousness bit is really that we don't even know all the time if we're being true to ourselves when we say why well, we think or believe something. Yeah. And the worst thing you need to do is to be in a Christian country and uh, everyone thinks they can just say they're a Christian and uh, never have to look into the content of it. You know, it could happen. I don't know if this is true or not. Well, let's say there was a large group of people that were all very, tr- like if you asked them all the theology questions, they would all turn out to be very orthodox evangelical Christians. But in this hypothetical country, um, those of them with... Uh, with white skin, let's say 81% of them, maybe, 81% of them thought after passing their theology quiz, said, you know what? A serial adulterer who's been in multiple Playboy films, uh, brags about sexually assaulting people, uh, is non-repentant about trying to have black men executed for years, has multiple lawsuits that he paid off by discriminating in property. Like, I mean, some, yeah. I mean, I don't even know if you could imagine anything like this. But um, surprisingly, if you ask them about their faith, just happens like one race thought this is great, so good, like he's basically Cyrus from the Hebrew Bible. If you believed all the other things and were in a different racial profile, apparently he wasn't. You're like, how'd that happen? <laughs> And Kierkegaard wants to go like, well, what happens when you're in a situation or a cultural context where the definition of what it means to be Christian is so easy, you just have to get up in a room and say two Corinthians, then the actual content of the religion and the life and model of its founder are so divorced from it that people in that place that may even think they're Christians and they've never even been disturbed by the gospel yet. And so he's really worried about the people that would end up thinking they're Christian because they're actually not. They wouldn't know it because everyone around them is Christian and they're like, this is what Christians do. You grow up in a Christian home, you go to your church, you vote for this party and you play t-ball and you really love football and as long as they don't kneel and probably join the military. There's no rupturing that whole package. Yeah. 
So Kierkegaard's thing is like, there is no whole package that you're the blob of Christianity you're a part of. Christianity ultimately, if it's about faith, if it's about a form of life, is something no one else can do for you. You are have to look your finite existence in the face and decide to give yourself to something. My grandpa, when he would, one of his lines he would use regularly, he was like, everyone dies, but not everyone lives before they do. And Kierkegaard is like that on steroids. Where he's like, no, you're going to die. The question is, like, will you have ever seized any of your ideas for yourself? Are you just this pseudo self other people project on you? You learn from your society, your place in history, all those things. Like the first four parts of the consciousness, you can inherit your part in it and perform it and learn your role. But will you ever live? If, if you're just performing it, then you may not even be aware of what's going on in you. If you could make five decisions all on your own in your life, that would be amazing. If we have so many reasons to be skeptical of our ability to really grasp at the truth in some sense of like knowing what's really going on, how do we get to the good? How do we know what is, what is good to do? What is, what is truly ethical? I would say that we're a lot better at l cultivating the ability to see the good when we receive it than when we do it. Our hermeneutics, our ability to interpret good into our own actions is uh, amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> and sometimes we're sincere, right? Like sometimes we're just trying to interpret it and after the fact, like we did whatever we want and now we want to like explain it now that we're embarrassed and got caught uh, to being good. But there are plenty of other times, like the good, when we're trying to figure out what it is, is uh, uh, we think we're doing good and have convinced ourselves that it's not. But when people do it for you and you see it, like you're like, wow, that was like extremely compassionate or mm -hmm. really loving. That's what, you know. And, and I learned this from a uh, mentor I had early on as a minister who said, uh, when you tell stories in your sermons, if you tell a personal one, you should always be the antagonist. Mm. But when you tell the protagonist should always be someone people in your congregation could identify with, like, you know, see themselves as. Mm. Right? So, and once I started taking notes all the time, like, oh, I might give a talk, I can use this. And you're, like, thinking about it. Realize you learn, uh, you can learn more what good is, like, when you're in the, when you're receiving it. Or you see it happen, and you're mm -hmm. like, oh, that that's beautiful. Like, and you spot it. If you let that shape how you try to do the good, it works better than, like, you trying to call what you're already going to do good. Mm -hmm. As a minister, I found, uh, like, when someone comes to you and they're really plagued, do not give them an answer. Because you'll be held responsible if you encourage them to one answer versus another anyway. Um, but, like, if you were, like, tripping on a situation, blah, 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 blah. Like, uh, one that regularly would come up is someone, you know, like... Well, we're only together because of the kids, and they'll be leaving home. But then I met this other person, and you're like, "What? Why are you telling me this?" <laughs> like you're in this situation, or whatever, and you're like, "Well, what would you tell yourself? Like if your friend told you this, what would you say?" Oh, they don't want to hear what they would tell their yeah. friend, right? And I'm like, "All right." So my suggestion is, I think you're uncomfortable even telling me what your friend would tell you. <laughs> so you should think about that. Humans. Uh, when it goes to those more immediate questions around the good, uh, I think a lot of us have the ability to decide. The problematic ones 
our win, our relationships to others are mediated by institutions, mechanisms, uh, technology, or money. When our relationship to, uh, I mean, depending on where our genes were made, Indonesia is a very popular place to get very nice jeans at a low price with raw denim, you know, mm-hmm. can symbolically reveal how j- hip you are when you <laughs> wear them. And the pollution that comes out of those factories, the harm to the workers, and all that kind of stuff, you have a relationship with them when you put on those jeans every time. If you were there, you would never buy jeans from those factories, right? Yeah. But there are the mediation that comes with the economy, the question of the good just doesn't come up. Because of the distancing. Yeah, same when we think about, I think a lot of the questions around ecological crisis are you'd only just have that removal, the consequences are delayed. I've taught intro to ethics to probably a couple hundred undergrads, so like 18 to 19 year olds. uh, Their first required class of some philosophy or critical thinking. Mm. And the issue has never been in those classes that they can't think abstract or that they can't, if they're forced to think about something and research it, come up with some option that's, like, pretty decent. Mm-hmm. It's we just don't want to do the good, right? Like, so yeah. So sometimes we just don't do it. Sometimes we come up with ways of preserving our ignorance so we don't have to be responsible. Or we just hang out with enough people that we're like, well, we're better than them. Yep. I, I think that's fascinating about the distance thing. Um, I think as far as finding out what the good is, like I like to go back to the platinum rule or whatever, where you it's do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Yeah, the just I would say that I think the good arises out of relationship, mm-hmm. and I, yeah, I don't really see it existing outside of that, and so it gets built out of consideration. I mm-hmm. think. You know, one of the things I've interacted with a lot, especially in the last few years, are those who are more progressive and are experiencing a lot of disillusionment, feeling overwhelmed by the things we're facing all at once. And they may even know what it is, what they think the good is or something, but then feel impotent, right? Like To do it. Yeah, and because I think a growing number of people are aware of the, uh, like earlier, the or having social and historical consciousness. So uh, just because you have the consciousness doesn't mean you have the agency to do much about it. So one of the things that I've consistently said in those situations, in each moment, there's three powers at work. One is the past, and you can't change it. All right, Tripp's talking about process philosophy now, which oh, yeah, yeah. we're both into. But I'm proud that I haven't gone there yet. Oh, <laughs> process philosophy. So it's a so the past is something you can't change. But think of how much good doesn't happen because we're obsessed with the past, and we dwell on the past, and we continue to give the past power over our present that it shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. The second power is the the future, the possibilities that are available to us, uh, and and process thought calls it uh, the ideal aim the lure, uh, that kind of thing, the call. Uh, I mean, it's lots of different ways you can describe it. But that of what's actually available to happen in the next moment, there's some spectrum of possibility, and they could be assessed mm-hmm. as more or less beautiful and good and such. And 
if you are a process person who believes in God, then you think God desires the most beautiful thing to happen in the next moment. Mm-hmm. But like, just because God desires like, you know, peace, love, and happiness doesn't mean that's actually an option the next moment, yeah. right? So it's what's available. And the third power is like what agency you actually bring to the situation. Mm-hmm. And that means like what you can actually do. So when you're thinking about doing the good, as much as you can let the past be the past and receive it to inform you doing the most beautiful in the moment, then it contributes. But if it deters you, weighs you, then that stuff you need to work on and process, right? But all you're responsible for is what you're doing in that moment. That's all, all you can do. Yeah. You can't fix everything. You can't look to the future and then go, oh, get overwhelmed and walk away, <laughs> which happens so often yeah. because I do it, right? You are responsible for what you say, what you do, and how you handle what's been said and done to you. That also means you're not responsible for what other people do. Mm-hmm. We're not responsible for what our kids do. We're responsible to our kids. But we're not responsible for them. Yeah. And the better parent you are, the more they recognize that they're responsible for what they say and what they do mm-hmm. and how they receive things. Bad parents get embarrassed when their kids act like themselves. Like when you're stressed out and stuff, and then they do one little thing, and now you're like upset that they were just being themselves. And you're like, oh, you didn't comply with what I wanted. Or like, why is the five-year-old really asking for candy at a store where it's sitting on the end of each aisle that I took her to? (laughs) How dare you? You know, like, there's so many times, like, as a parent, like, you realize, like, you think you're being judged because of your kid. So now I feel like I'm responsible for my kid. And now that I'm responsible for my kid, I'm just going to act like a fool. And try to force them into doing stuff and being mean and a jerk and get overwhelmed and embarrassed. Like, And that happens with so many other things. Or like, you're really trying to make a difference, but then it was buy one, get one free Whoppers. <laughs> There's a difference between being responsible for something and responsible to someone or to some collective. Mm-hmm. And if you can distinguish that and recognize that your responsibility is for this moment... And for your own words and for your own deeds, then you don't have to live as overwhelmed, exhausted, and cynical and nihilistic and lead to disillusionment and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's part of the genius of why like, Jesus is like, consider the lilies. And then you're like, yeah, but what if all the bees die? <laughs> you know, that's like, <laughs> you're like that. And Jesus is like, all right, but is this really going to help the bees not die? No, but I'll feel a lot better if we all complain about it together for an extended period of time, get overwhelmed, anxious, and then move to inaction. Are we okay? Is that is that okay? <laughs> well, what about all right? So, but what if you have something that you can do that might help? Well, yeah, the then bees? then do then it. You're responsible. Yeah. No, I just meant, I just meant like when he goes like consider the lilies. They don't sit around and are worried about yeah. yesterday and what happened, and then like ten yeah. years from now, uh, they got their clothes covered. <laughs> And uh, birds, they aren't like sitting there getting a worm out going. Whenever I'm going to get another one. But when yeah. it comes to retirement, um, and not that you, we can't think about those things. And it's not, you should be responsible for your future. This isn't like kill your retirement plan. I mean, the other way it shows up that shows up in the Sermon on the Mount was when Jesus says, don't go running around like throwing your pearls before swine. A lot of people, you know, have beautiful things to give. And then they just keep throwing them at people that can't differentiate a pearl from slop. You're like pouring yourself into a relationship or a problem or a community or, or something. 
and then you feel dead inside. But that's because you keep trying to give everything, and there's no one there to receive it. Yeah, you're throwing pearls, and the pigs are like, "I like mud." Uh, and then you're like exhausted, and you're like, "I'm just trying to do the right thing." What is it, if you could say? And I, we've talked about this a bit before, not on the show, obviously, but uh, process philosophers, thinkers tend to go towards the beautiful. What? Why is that? It, is it like it? Is it held higher than the good or the true, or is it getting at something differently than them? Yeah, so the good, true, and beautiful are these, from the earliest part of philosophy, these ancient ancient virtues of sorts. And most uh, systems of thought give one the lead. Mm-hmm. It, right, if the good is the lead, then ethics are primary. The truth of a situation has to do with the actual volume of good. And what's beautiful would be like doing the most good for the most people and that type of thing. Others, truth becomes primary and such. That doesn't mean you're divorcing it from the others. It just yeah. means that like when you're thinking about the it's, good... It's leading the dance. Yeah. It's the, like you want it to be a beautiful thing. Um, and I, I think that means the messy or the ugly is not foreign to the beautiful in ways that if you're thinking about beauty in the true sense or the ideal sense or whatever, uh, it's there. But it's an interesting way to think about it. Almost that it, it's almost coloring the other two, mm-hmm. like shading shading them a certain way or tilting them a certain way. Yeah, and process philosophy is a speculative philosophy. So, like Whitehead says, uh, seek truth and distrust it. Right, <laughs> like because he knows, like it's not that we aren't after truth; it's that we don't want to be the type of person that finds the truth. It's better to be the one seeking it. Not because you don't get closer, and not that you don't make progress. But it's that just if, you, that, like, if you think you found it, you're, yeah, you're you seek wrong. the truth, yeah. but distrust it, because the truth will escape you. And then uh, uh, Whitehead, the end of process and reality, one of his Whitehead's the guy philosopher, who, yeah, yeah, big um, process guy. He, he brings up this debate, you know, among how people understand God, and he goes, you know, for most of history, people understood God as like being itself. Mm-hmm. Or the great moralizer, mm-hmm. or uh, this type of thing, or the ultimate judge. And he goes, eh, I don't like those three. You get God as being, what does that even mean? It's like it doesn't have anything to do with like the, the actual things of life. It's like this thing underneath the things of life. And the things of life, where life lives, are the most complex and beautiful encounters you have. And why would you have a God that's definitionally divorced from the most intense, beautiful experiences you have? God is judge. Jesus Christ was against it. And uh, um, and he goes, he goes, religions to start judging. Have you seen those things? Anyway, so and a moralist. He's like, like that religions, God's primarily about you know, like inscribing these morals on you. And then he goes, but there is a fourth option. He calls it the Galilean vision. He's mm-hmm. talking about, you know, Jesus and the community around the disciples and such. It does not assert itself like being itself. It did not find judgment as a means to transformation. And it is a bit oblivious as to morals. Hmm. Why? Because it dwells on the tender things of life. The vision of the kingdom of God that Jesus is embodying and giving uh, dwells on the tender elements. It doesn't force, it invites, it encourages, it lures, it brings us in. Um, and 
and and it doesn't go around judging and inscribing morals on people. But that's not because it wasn't a revolution of morals. But the revolution of morals doesn't really come by domineering. Mm. It's a bit oblivious as to morals. It's Whitehead's line, which I think is is beautiful. Why? Because every relationship runs by you by being a bit oblivious as to morals. Do you realize how horrible it would be if we had good memories and kept count? Like it would not be good. They would ruin every marriage. Like parents would reevaluate having children. It would turn every office. Like you, everyone would start like tracking each other. <laughs> Getting these updates from what each other's doing with their time and stuff. There's a there's a Black Mirror episode about that. Yeah, yeah. sounds horrible. The oblivious as to moral thing, I think it, it really gets at the beauty that grace makes possible precisely by not counting. Right? Mm. Like, most of us don't know how to imagine a relationship where your value is not something that's quantified. Where it's an inherent quality of your being, not something that's quantified like mm-hmm. what you do. Jesus gives a story about, um, you know, forgiving and then says, does the whole like 70 times seven thing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because he wanted the disciples to do the math and start counting. <laughs> it's because they were counting. Yeah. And he's like, no, you don't understand. Like if you recognize that the most true thing about you, is the ultimate source of existence sees you, knows you and loves you then every place you put your foot is home and no one can tell you something that's more true about you than the source has already spoken, right? Like, once you get that, then counting is dumb. Yeah. Not because good doesn't matter or the true doesn't matter or working everything out and trying to make a difference, all that stuff. It's just if you're counting, you've missed the point. Mm. Uh, One of the ways I ask myself, when you think about a relationship that's having issues... Or, or like if it's your work or whatever, like a, a situation where you're having tension, mm-hmm. is it ask yourself, what are the questions that come through your mind as you're walking in that space? If my wife and I, we've argued back and forth about stuff, we're really stressed about things and things, and I'm going to be going into the house, and I know what I'm thinking. I'm like, I don't really know if I technically apologize for what it was I don't know I did yesterday. I do know that I only did half of what I said I was going to do before I went to bed, I'm currently frustrated by the day I just had, and I really hope uh, she takes me doing dishes and making dinner and doing the kids' bath as means of uh, uh, retribution, like you know, avoiding retribution by restitution. <laughs> because if I have to try to guess again why I am in trouble, I will fail. And honestly, I don't care. I think we should move on, right? Like, and that's going through my head. And then she's probably sitting there going, like, "Oh my God." Here he comes again, right? Like, and you can think of what's going on. If you start to think of those situations, then go like, um, what question should you be carrying in it? Mm-hmm. And what is the most beautiful question you can bring in that moment? Not in the abstract, but like real specifically. And when I think through those things, like in the, uh, the example I just gave a couple days ago, something like that was going on. And when I got home, you know, I thought about it. Um, I went in and said, which is not a normal thing for me to do. Um, but like I went in and was like, I know we left our conversation undone last night, but I wanted you to know that I want to hear anything else you want to have, you, you want to say, cause I don't want to be the person who refuses to listen. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Oh, that's not a big deal. I was really glad you got home in time to make dinner. But if I hadn't said that, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it would have been different. 
right? Like in, um, and early when I first, my therapist first told me that a long time ago, yeah. I told Alicia and I would come in and I'd be in a place. She'd go, can you go back outside? And when you get a new question, come in. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, but, but that new question, I think is about like that when whiteheads talk about beauty being like, uh, like Jesus has turned to like that tender element. Or, like, it's a bit oblivious as to morals. It's not going in asserting itself like the ground of being or, or something. Yeah, it, and it's not, it's, not, it's not just, really, right? It's, it's past. Yeah. Just would be you trying to figure out what actually you're owed and what you owe. That's not really going to solve that problem in any way that's, that's good or beautiful. Or, like, what you did. Think of how many people feel, like, guilty and they don't know why they're guilty and then want to think about how bad they are because they don't even fully understand it. You already have everything you'll ever need to be fully known and loved and affirmed by the ultimate source of all things. Like, that's the gospel. That's what Christianity thinks if you do it well. And I think each religious tradition has different ways of getting at similar things, so it's not a... I mean, obviously, I've already said enough about that. I just want, like, for me, like, why I choose to stay located in that tradition, benefit from it. Because the most true thing about you is you're God's beloved. And that's true about my enemies when I have them. And it's true about myself when I don't believe it. Mm. And a lot of us believe lies. And when we believe lies about ourselves, we live as if they're true, even though they're not. And so, like, you hear someone say you're not good enough and whatever, and you start to believe it. You look in the mirror. You join them in their judgment. But the heart of Christianity is I made you, I know you, and I love you completely. There's so many different stories you get around to it. When we gather, we gather at the table. Jesus served the people that denied him and betrayed him and ditched him as he died. Because literally everyone gets the gift that he's about to pour out for all. That's beautiful. And a lot of us go, and that's where we realize we should probably at least forgive our children and not be the biggest jerk when we go to work. And maybe we could spend a few of our extra hours trying to make a difference for other people. Until you internalize the beauty at the heart of it, I think the good and the true parts feel like a burden. Mm. It's not a burden to do things I used to call chores because I know they're part of loving my my wife well. Mm -hmm. Until I got good at being Elgin's dad. When he uh, moms are, I think, are born way better at being parents than dads. Dads like have to cultivate what it's like to relate and love something that contributes nothing technically but looking cute and pooping. <laughs> right? Like they come out, they're like breastfeeding, holding it, I've known you for nine months, and you're like, I made this. Right? And can I remember Elgin the second time he had horrible ear infections and we're like, I'm rocking him. And then if I stopped rocking or if Carr's movie stopped playing, he cried. And I watched Carr's multiple times at night, right? Like, it didn't matter. I, he's te- I think he's asleep, but he can hear it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like probably four in the morning, and it's at the end of Cars again, right? And I'm sitting there, and I've learned, like, just do it. And I think, he's not going to let me sit and hold him all night long now. Right? Like, it's not going to happen. He's in, uh, he just wants to go to a concert and doesn't know why his dad's talking in a bus. Um, but, like, it gets around to that scene at the end of Cars where uh, <laughs> King, the old car, mm-hmm. and Chick Hicks and Lightning McQueen are racing. 
and Chick Hicks knocks over the king and wrecks it. And it's the old car's last hurrah. And he wrecks and he remembers his buddy who's been training him and helping become friends again. The Hudson Hornet mm-hmm. had, was wrecked and everyone forgot him. And so he stops, doesn't cross the finish line. Chick Hicks passes and he goes and pushes him across. And then he gets on the van. And the friends, and he's like, why didn't you win? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, without friends, it's just an empty cup. Now, I'm about to cry telling you that story. <laughs> and it's because that was the moment I realized there is really nothing else better than sitting there and getting to be a part of communicating to an 18-month-old who just wants someone to hold him upright while he has an earache that at the heart of existence is a deep love who will watch this movie with you multiple times and just rock you because everything until you get the big love part is just empty. Now, at 4.30 in the morning... A lot of rocking. I start crying. He wakes up. You okay, Daddy? I'm fine. <laughs> right? But like, but after that moment, I realized like being a parent, it's just like gift. It's a gift to a different type of life, right? Like uh, showing up for that's real different than showing up for like a peer or a friend, and mm-hmm. you have to figure out how to do this. But there wasn't like the communication part that you have when you're talking and things and. Uh, and, but I knew what I wanted to communicate as a parent was to pass on the gifts uh, that you've received and the insights you've gained and stuff. And the biggest one, you've already got it. Mm. Now, we spend our life awakening to it again mm-hmm. in new depths. But when we live in that truth, that and there's so many ways it gets said in Scripture in all sorts of different ways. The Lamb was slain before the foundation of the earth. So the whole thing's in the context that God has refused to be God without us. I'm giving myself to the world as I make it. That's who God is. The one that refused to be God without us. That's beautiful. But if you think that, like, why are you going to sit there living in anxiety about whether you matter or you belong or you have a place? I'll probably do it later tonight. I don't know. I just, (laughs) but, but like when you talk about beauty, to me, beauty makes the good worth doing and the truth worth believing mm-hmm. and that's a great way to put it like we should all get muted from talking about the good and the true for the first 30 minutes of every conversation i think that would be like the way you fix christians in america may not all religious people i'd love to learn more about other religious traditions but if you're a protestant <laughs> oh if you're a white protestant definitely then 30 minutes of every religious conversation no you can't say like good and true things only beautiful ones. And if you ask a question, it's not about what they believe. It's like what they've encountered. Yeah. Right? Like, and if you dwell on those things, then I think the others show up in different ways. I think that's about to end it. Thanks, man. All righty. Let's go rock and roll. If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And share this episode with a friend. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Carry the Fire Pod. I want to thank my producer, Andy Lara, and all of our executive producers, Adam Collins, Andrew Diaz, Brianna Webb, Brian Weisbecker, Colin Hawthorne, Denise Sugita, David Cobb, Drew Para, Eric Gonzalez, Gary Jelke, Jeremy Robinson, Jess Card, 
John Buchan, John Diego, John Engel, Jonathan Clark, Jordan Goodman, Jordan Everly, Joshua Malara, Kyle Starr, Luis Enriquez, Mark Francis, Marco Padilla, Mark Weiss, Matt Fuchs, Matthew Alcon, Max Glazer, Michael Maitland, Nathaniel Bailey, Paul Pratt, Ron Alberca, Samantha Simmons, Sean Weidmeyer, Stephen Saucier, Susanna Coleman, Tiffany Payne, Timothy Duin, and William Galdemez. And last but not least, sign up for email updates about upcoming guests and special show information at www.carrythefirepod.com. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>